Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church from the Gospel of Matthew. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Brian. Let's pray together. God, as we come to your words, to your table this morning, I pray that we would approach knowing your goodness, your mercy, your perfection, your holiness. May we not be the center of this universe, even just for a moment, but get outside of ourselves and place you in the middle of our own story, of our own chaos, of our own joy. May we approach and believe and worship something greater than ourselves. And God, as we come to you, may we be led into the complexity of this life. May we be led into the sacred spaces you are creating in this world and within ourselves. May we be led into the dance of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, into the flow of the faith and the hope and the love in which you are moving through this world. And so I pray that you would use my words to bless your people. Those words that do not need to be heard, may may they fall on mute ears, and those words that come from your spirit, may they connect to the depths of our heart, because we long to be transformed people, transformed by your love so much that we may go into this world and love courageously, as you have loved us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, I don't know if you remember this from high school or maybe um, college psychology, but um, these, some of these images were thrown up and they ask you, what do you see? So we see different things. Um, who, who, vase people, who saw a vase first? Raise a hands, any? Yeah, oh, one, thank you. Um, face people who see faces, two faces. Interesting, I feel like that was just, who can see both things I'm talking about? Okay, uh, intre- yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm, okay, next one. This is one of my favorite, actually. Mm. Um, Young lady looking away with a feather hat. Who are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Old lady with a large nose looking the other way. Yeah, a couple of you. Kind of split even. The other way, it was just one of you. I like that. That's the smartest person in the room. Um, that's just what this test says. It's not me. Um, I love these things because they get to something about our brain and how it works. I know there's a lot of history, and uh, those who are professionally in this realm have all different kind of meanings of what these mean, but... One of the things as we think of how do we see in this world? How do we interact with other people? How do we see the things around us? And one of the things that we naturally, normally do is see the world in a black and a white. 
We separate things, and the way in which we separate them begins to shape the way in which we see. One of the things that's strange in the first images is you can't just hold both. You either see two faces, or you see a vase, or you switch to the other, one or the other. But to hold both at the same time, like, just doesn't work. And so, our passage today is asking us, how do we engage and see the world? How do we judge it? Well, as um, humans, one of the things that we do, and that actually is kind of helpful, is um, at definitely early stages in our life, is an act of judgment. To go, okay, this is a safe place, and this is an unsafe place. This is a good place, and this is a bad place. This is hot, and when I touch it, I burn, and this is cold, and it's safe. These are good things that humans have developed and have a brain to be able to control. We separate things. We create good and bad, and we We create two, usually two different things and kind of say, okay, the world feels safe and less chaotic and makes sense to me now. But what happens in life is sometimes we just hold on to this separation and we begin to build institutions that affirm the separation that we have of things in this world. We create ways in which we create a dual world. We create a separatism and a way of understanding things. And before you kind of feel proud saying, well, that's not what I do. It's what we all do. This is just how we survive in this world. We have good. We have bad. We see in black and white. We break up conservative and progressive. We understood the world as that which is above and below, the heavens and the earth. We have things that we are for and things that we are against. There are things in life that we deem as sacred and other things as unsacred. We have emotions and feelings for weeping and other ones for laughter. We either go for CU or Nebraska, and that worked out one day. We have my team or not my team. Strong, weak, faith, doubt, light, or darkness. We have ways in which we separate this world so that it makes sense to us. And that was helpful for a majority of our lives. Then Jesus shows up and embodies a different way of being in this world. A non-dual way of existing in this world. And calls each and every one of us through his teaching, his life, his death, and his resurrection to be transformed people. That though we used to just be able to judge and separate so that we could feel safety, Christ calls us to a transformed way of seeing reality as we know it. Jesus does it in many different ways, and one of the most common ways that Jesus calls us to this new way of seeing and living in the world is through the lens of paradox. In his first sermon, he says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This would have flipped that day and our day, and the way in which institution and religion was moving, it would have flipped it upside down. It was Jesus who said, the last shall be first. We've heard it so common, we're like, oh yeah, but really? Is that what we believe? Or in our passage today, you have heard it say you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies. You should know who's good and who's bad. But I say to you, love your enemies. Jesus literally embodied kind of this non-dual way of knowing and seeing the world. And he didn't just do it with his words and his teaching, but he also, more importantly, did it with his relationships. 
Several times we see Jesus interact in a way in which society and life says, no, this is how you're supposed to do it, and he just does it the opposite way. He meets a Samaritan woman at a well who is alone. He shouldn't talk to her. It's just not custom. It's not right. It's not politically correct. Let alone he should not include her. And let alone he should not be welcoming her into a life of worship with God because this is not what scripture says. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But Jesus meets this woman at the well and kind of just sees everything differently. He hears her story, challenges her, accepts her, and invites her to a life, a full life with living water in Christ. We know it's wrong because the disciples, the followers, show up, just like maybe we follow up, we show up to situations like that, and they're going, whoa, whoa, Jesus, this can't be happening right now. So Jesus welcomes those who were often not welcomed, those who were marginalized and poor. He brings them and seats them at the head of the table. But before some of you who are just like, yes, Jesus, doing my like social justice thing, I love that about you, he does it to the other side as well. He meets a centurion soldier. This is the direct enemy of the people and of the community of that day. This soldier's son um, is ill and is looking for healing. Every good person would look at the oppressor of the day and just say, no, this is not someone, this is not who God came for. This is not who good news is for. This is the oppressor in our world. And Jesus says, today your son has been healed. The man begins to walk home and he knows that the exact moment that his son was healed is the exact moment that Jesus said something and he believes. It goes against the way in which we want to judge, to separate, and to dualistically see this world. Jesus so embodies it that we have this theology that makes no sense, thanks be to God, that Christ is both fully human and fully divine. I know you say that. I know you can have your maybe thoughts of that. It doesn't make sense. It's not how we live in this world. God as God and Son and Holy Spirit in a dance is even just taking the idea of like two separate things and going like, how do we hold them? It just adds another third and be like, try to figure out that juggling act together. Jesus embodies a different way of seeing and moving through this world and I believe is ushering us into a sacred space creating us with new eyes, new ways of moving through this world. Here at All Souls, we've called that sacred space and. It's when we begin to hold two things that we believe are in just direct tension or against each other, but when we hold them together, when we value both and kind of find the shared sacred oneness space that they hold together. You read it in your Psalms today. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. But if I make my bed in the depths in Sheol, you're there as well. Or as it goes on, even in the darkness is not dark to to you. The night will shine like the day. That that darkness is not just dark, but, but that it is in relationship with light. 
Or maybe we think about it as our own selves. We are complex, mixed up creatures and God sees us that way. Oh, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh, that I am a sinner, the worst of all, and yet a saint because of your love. God sees and Jesus moves and sees us in this way and calls us to this sacred middle space. But it's a new way of seeing. It's a new way of acting. It's a new way of living. And it demands that God would lead us. For me, this idea of Anne, of the center space in which a lot of scripture loves to spend its time, um, is hard. It's complex. It's difficult. Sometimes filled with tension or awkward feelings in us. So no wonder we don't stay there. I also think it might be beautiful. It might be the place where we find the deepest grace. It might be the place in my life where I've seen God show up. I was reading a meditation on this shining word and that's on the front of your guide and I want to read it for us slowly today and maybe you can circle one that kind of stands out for you. It says the shining word and. And allows us to be both and. It keeps us from either or. It teaches us to be patient and long-suffering. And is willing to wait for insight and integration. It keeps us from dualistic thinking. It does not divide, and does not divide the field of the moment. And helps us live in the always imperfect now. And keeps us inclusive and compassionate towards everything. And demands that our contemplation become action. And insists that our action is also contemplation. And heals our racism, sexism, heterosexism, and our classism and keeps us from the false choice of liberal or conservative, and allows us to critique both sides of things, and allows us to enjoy both sides of things, and helps us to face and accept our own dark side, and allows us to ask forgiveness and to apologize, and is the mystery of paradox in all things, and is the way of mystery, mercy, and makes daily practical love possible, and does not trust love if it is not also justice, and and does not trust justice if it is not also love, and is far beyond my religion versus your religion, and allows us to be both distinct and yet united. And is the mystery of Christ of history, or of Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And is the very mystery of the Trinity. My friends, in our ability to read reality in this non judgmental way, in a way that is not exclusionary of parts, of the parts that we don't understand, to look at the things that are maybe uh, against our tradition, against our life, to look at those and just say, you know what, I'm just gonna throw that away. It holds no meaning. When we don't split everything up into what you like and what you don't like, we leave ourselves open to the moment, to the life that is before us. You let it be 
what it is in itself. And you let it speak to you. And is a sacred space. I think of Moses encountered this space. When he had murdered someone, Moses was in the desert and just trying to keep his own away from the life of his community and from God. And as he's walking in the desert, he sees this complete mystery that a bush is there and it is on fire, but it is not burned up. You get how that doesn't make sense, right? It's like that sacred place just right there in the middle meeting him. You've had these sacred moments in your life where it just doesn't totally make sense. The mystery of life is invading your judgmental reality. And so Moses comes to this burning bush, which has so much symbolism for him at that time. And from the bush, the very presence of God, I am that I am, begins to speak to him. And what does Moses do? As he looks at this mystery, as he looks at this paradox, as he looks at the paradox, not just of a bush burning, but that God's presence would meet him in the desert, that's not where God shows up. What does Moses do? He removes his sandals because the ground that he is standing is holy ground. And is the place of holy ground in our lives. When God shows up, when we think God shouldn't show up. Sometimes in our pain and our suffering, sometimes in the joy that just surprises us, it's the moments of wonder and mystery and life. And it probably happens more in relationships than anywhere else. It's holy ground that Jesus is inviting us to. And as we turn to our passage for the end here, I don't think there's a place in which Jesus raises the bar of this holy ground more than we get in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is finishing up this sermon in which he takes a lot of the prophets and the laws and the things that they had said, and he kind of just raises the bar on what does it mean. I think the disciples and others were sitting around going, oh, this is so true. This is getting rid of the hypocrisy of our day, but also this is so daunting because I cannot even begin to live up to this. And so Jesus goes off in the Sermon on the Mount for a long time, and it kind of gets to the major climax of the moment in which it says that you're to love your enemies. The passage says this directly. You have heard it said you should love your neighbors and hate your enemies. It's interesting. I don't know if Jesus didn't do very well like in um, VBS Bible school, but he actually doesn't quote Leviticus correctly. If you look back in uh, Leviticus 19, it actually doesn't say hate your enemies. I don't know if Jesus is like kind of making up his own scripture or something. But no, the deeper reading is this, that Jesus understands when it says love your enemies, what everyone was thinking, when, when, when it said love your neighbors, what the, the people of that day and the Jewish community of that time and what we think now when it says love your neighbors is it goes through this lens of, okay, take care of your people. Find your people, protect them, and put the wall around it, and just make sure that we love one another. And we see this interpretation go throughout all of the Old Testament, and it probably became a rabbinic teaching, is that you're just supposed to love your neighbor. You're supposed to love the people that look like you and act like you and do the same rituals as you. And everyone on the outside is unsafe and build that wall so they can't come in. 
So Jesus interprets, interprets scripture the way they hear it and says, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy. Don't just love them, but pray for them. Pray for the ones who persecute you so they may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Do you see God, God doesn't, God has a, a better way of seeing this world that we just don't understand. And I know it's hard, but I want it to be bigger than the way I see this world. I want it to be bigger than the way I understand this world. If it wasn't, I don't think it would be God. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Didn't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen, Jesus says. I would hear that and just feel like a bucket of shame was poured upon my being. Especially with the end sentence, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I kind of want it to be like the benediction today. Just go and be perfect. Or in that Forsyth family, it's like, do more, try harder. Um, go, be as great as you can. What is Jesus up to in this? Isn't, this? isn't this the Jesus that loves and accepts and just is willing to heal? No, it is. But Jesus is raising the bar on our ethic of love. My friends, our view of loving others and receiving the love of God is way too low. It has been for too long. We've created it into something that we think that we can just manage and produce by ourselves. If we just don't do this action, if we don't just engage in this way, if we memorize enough of this, if we read the right books, then we can kind of get by and say, you know what, I'm doing it right. Jesus is like, no, the bar of God's reality is so much higher than your own. God's way of loving is beyond anything that you could imagine. And so the bar goes higher than we could ever jump or cross or be able to achieve. He raises it higher because this is God. This is the way we want God to be in this world. If God is just manageable, and if God's love, if God's definition of love is our definition of love, then that's just a scary reality for us all. Because we don't live in a way in which we can hold the tensions and the life and the complexity of it all. But God, the great artist, has a way of painting it all together. So Jesus is saying the paradoxical values of the kingdom of heaven, they come to this place, this climax of love your enemies. An enemy is by definition not loved or lovable. That's just who they are. But Jesus says, no, this this is the life I'm inviting you into. So be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There's a lot of ways to interpret this last one, and I know you're curious. Eugene Peterson, the message, I love how he puts it. In a word, what I am saying is grow up. You're kingdom people. Now live like it. Live out, live out of your God-created identity. Give generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. 
One of the things that's going to move someone away from this kind of judgmental, dualistic way of thinking is growing up. It is a transformation of our mind, our heart, and the way we see our world. That is a young way of living, and Jesus is saying, no, my spirit has come so that you can mature, that you can grow up, and that you can live in this world in a different way. It may not be the way you want to start teaching with your children, but it's something we grow into. It's something that we, be, we begin to hold when the Spirit takes over our lives. We see the complexity, the beauty, and the simplicity of following God in this world. Grow up, it says. In the Luke passage, it's the exact same passage, but it doesn't end with be perfect like your Heavenly Father is perfect. It ends with be merciful just as your father is merciful. Be merciful as your father is merciful. The word perfect in the Greek means complete, mature, righteous. Maybe the best reading is whole. Be whole. In the same way that God is whole. And so how do we move to this wholeness that we long and desire in our life? We cannot move into that space, that way of seeing the world and seeing others, unless we are willing to receive God's view, God's mercy, God's goodness, God's righteousness given to us. Jesus raises the bar so high to say, this isn't something that you can do alone. Receive my mercy so that you may be merciful to others. Receive my love so that you may go and love others likewise. Step in to this life with me. And in doing so, it begins to pour out a life that resembles me. You can't do it on your own. That's why this divine human teacher leader that gave his life and resurrected showed up because we are in need of seeing and living in this world in a different way and so last year all souls um, was curious about trying to find values that represent our community and so we did that by meeting um, we had a lot of bunch of small groups that gathered and just say what, are, what do you value about this community we wanted to listen from the ground up from the people who actually are alive and well in this community and say what is it that we value what do you use it that you value and surprisingly um, through all of our time and our research together we found that there was this people just saying you know like also has some of this and some of this and I love that they hold those things together it's a community that's holding this complexity of life together. And so our elders worked hard at trying to figure out what are some of these ways in which we step into this place of and. And when we do so, it's not because we're just well-balanced people. We're doing so the same way Moses approached the burning bush and saying, we believe in this world there are sacred spaces that are bigger than us, that demand that we receive God's grace, love, and forgiveness to be able to live and invite others into this space, to see this world differently. And it brings me great joy when I sit with someone and I see them in this holy space. They sit here on a Sunday morning and they are riddled with doubt and confusion, but they keep showing up to the community. I meet with the people 
who for years have been on the outside of a church in a community, but because this community was willing to hold a sacred space that would include them, they said, you know what, this is maybe something I can be a part of. It's an unwillingness to just have the the easy answers to life, but, but to weep together and to laugh together. It's a willingness to know that life has death and resurrection, that there's light and there is darkness. It's a willingness to love our enemies. And so Jesus leads us to this place. And we won't do it perfectly. But we will look to the one who has been merciful to us. We will receive the grace of God, step into that place, and create that holy space for ourselves and for others. We will enter the dance, God and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we, um, we come to you today. We try to lay down this judgmental separation of good and bad of those who are in and those who are out. We do so for our own story and our own sake because at this table, you have invited us to life. You who were divine and were human. You who knows our wounds and our scars and knows the beauty and the holiness of God held together in one. You, our great host, have invited us to sit down with you in the sacred spaces together, in the holy moments of our lives. We feel the tension. We feel the pain. We feel the joy. And we know, most importantly, that you are with us. There is no escaping you. No matter how high or how low we may go, you are with us. And you refuse to abandon us. So, may we realize that you are a God who has loved your enemies. The ways in which maybe we turn against you and go with our own plans, our own narcissistic ways of living in this world, you look to us and you choose to love You choose to give life. And so may we receive that life and help create the holy spaces in our world and as a community through your son. It's in your name we pray. Amen.